0: So, yesterday morning we moved beyond this kind of the foundational teachings on the four measurables to deep into Mahayana territory. That is, when we're moving into the Mahakaruna, that's definitely making a big step right into Mahayana. And then we'll proceed from there. This morning we'll move into Maitri, great loving kindness. So, you see a little bit strangely the great. Compassion is actually orders of magnitude beyond immeasurable. So it's just a matter of terminology. But I wanted to make, before we go into the meditation, which will be now kind of in a rhythm that we'll be already familiar with, because it poses the same four points. This is the classic liturgy. Uh, Often it's just chanted, but I'm really unpacking this, so it's a full-fledged meditation, which I think it deserves to be. But I wanted to make just a couple of comments first uh, that are kind of footnotes to or addenda to the talk yesterday morning and the meditation very much on the great compassion. And this enormously provocative question with which the classic meditation begins. And that is, why couldn't all sentient beings, or why couldn't we all, why couldn't we all be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? It's a, just an enormously, how do you say, full provocative question. Uh, and all of dharma, in a way, is a response to that. But we always want to keep our feet on the ground. You know, It has to be realistic. And people suffer for different reasons. Now, is there any reason why we really need to suffer mentally? And the, the Buddhist answer is, well, no. There is no reason you have to suffer mentally. It's just cut to the root of all mental distress, and you're, you're free completely and forever of all dukkha, of mind. But what about the body? What about about the body? There are if you've broken your bones or if you have arthritis or if you have some many, many diseases just don't lend themselves to effective medical treatment. We just know that, let alone aging. You know, we haven't found a way to kind of reverse that and make that turn out well. Or death itself, you know. So even Gautama the Buddha, he did get old. He did, according to the Pali accounts, Pali Canon accounts, he did get sick on occasion, and then of course he died. So this, all this Buddha Dharma, this whole fourth noble truth about the path to liberation from suffering and the causes of suffering, well, even the great expounder, the great awakened one, still got old, got sick, and died. So you say, well, but then isn't that kind of a bummer? Getting old, getting sick, and then dying. And of course the immediate response is, well, that was all transmuted. He experienced no mental suffering in that whatsoever. The body got old, yes, and so forth, but no mental suffering. But what about the physical? What about the physical? And what about physical... If we ask, why couldn't all sentient beings be free from physical suffering and its causes? And the answer would be, well, I've got an answer for that. There are some physical problems that just... That we can say they're due to karma from a Buddhist perspective or a medical perspective. There's just no effective treatment, right? There's just no effective treatment. And so, so then, therefore, although your mind may be very well, your body... Uh, maybe just stuck in samsara until you're finally rid of it. So these are not trivial issues. So I would suggest in terms of the uh, freedom from suffering and its causes, there are two strategies. And one may follow both, but they are not the same. And that is, if one is suffering from a physical malady, physical distress, physical suffering of any kind, due to injury, due to illness, or just for that matter, old age, One possibility is you actually find effective therapy. It could be from mainstream medicine, which has so many strengths. It could be from traditional Chinese medicine, Tibetan medicine, physiotherapy, who knows what. There's such a broad spectrum of mainstream and then also more holistic and so forth types of therapy that may be able to really help you, in in which case then, hedonically, you're much better off. That is, you really the, the problem that was there chronic, but you finally found the healer, who could heal you, and now your body is healthy once again. Right, so that's really good. If that can happen, that's great. Of course, sometimes it just doesn't happen. And in t- traditional Tibetan medicine, I know, having translated innumerable times for Dr. Yisha Dunton, uh, he knows perfectly well within his tradition and by his means of diagnosis, he can tell with his pulse diagnosis, especially uh, whether a disease is. Karmic, in which case, then the responsible tr- traditional Tibetan doctor will say, "I'm sorry, but I have no treatment for you. I don't believe it can be treated effectively. This is karmic. You're just going to have to weather this one out. The karmic has to burn itself off." And that's what a, D- a Tibetan doctor. He won't give you false hope. Tibetans don't like don't, That's not part of Buddhist tradition to mislead people to see them. Oh, you can't handle the truth. Well, oh, yeah, I could take these pills. Uh, you'll feel much better. They don't do that. You know? And so. So what about such cases? So, so, for, so for the cases where you can be healed, great. Why not just be healed, right? Why not? I think we would all prefer to be healthy than unhealthy and so forth and so on. But what about those cases, whether it's karmic or karmic or not, at least at this point in time, there is simply no effective medical treatment that you found and maybe it's not findable. Then what? Then you say, but yeah, but I, uh, I, I'm very happy to have... An, mental well-being but I kind of like you know i'm all, i'm also embodied so what about the body what about the body or is that just say well that's just tough luck that's karma you know you're stuck with it and i remember very vividly it's quite a few years back we had a there was a minor life conference in which i was again as i did so many times served as co-interpreter and uh, i love making mistakes when i'm in the presence of his holiness because he always catches it and then i learned very quickly and so, you know, I've had this informal but very long-term relationship with Tibetan Buddhism, uh, Tibetan medicine. Never stu- studied it reformally, but I've translated two books on it now and then translated innumerable times for consultations. And so I'm rather familiar with it in broad strokes. And so the two interpreters, Thubten Jimba and I, when we are teaming up, he does a, m- a magnificent job solo now. They just don't need me in that role. But for quite a few years, I was quite active. And so the interpreters were not simply like UN interpreters, you know, just a voice translating back and forth. But we actually were participants as well. And so at one point, I'm sitting there, and I, 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 I don't know what the t- general topic was, but I, I, I piped, piped, piped up. Like I made my comment that, well, uh, each according to traditional Tibetan medicine, also Indian Ayurvedic medicine, Every person has a certain psychophysiological humoral type or typology. So, wind bile, phlegm. Okay, but then many people—I'm one of them. Uh, many people are uh, uh, bile, and, bile and wind. A lot of fire and wind people. Fire bile is fire among the elements. So, a lot of people. His Holiness is fire and wind. And a lot of people are. That doesn't mean I'm like His Holiness. Just in just this tiny little microscopic way. Sure. Body type or psychophysiological typology. Some are really strong phlegm. Some are phlegm wind. And some are phlegm, you know, etc., etc. But you, but you have a certain typology, and it, it, sometimes you can just pick it up by looking at somebody. But a doctor will pick it up in you know matter of seconds from the pulse. You know exactly where you are. It's very useful. There's, um, I mean, it's actually very sophisticated. It has enormous diagnostic power, and then when they apply that to medication, it winds up having very great therapeutic power as well. I'm a total believer. I would be dead now if it were not for Tibetan medicine. That makes you a believer. And so what I piped up in this, uh, in this conference with His Holiness is we're talking, I think, about advanced stages of, 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 of tantra or Vajrayana practice. His Holiness likes to bring in the, the big, deep issues. And so I just piped up, well, but of course, no matter how highly realized you are, you can't change your um, psychophysiological typology. If you're a win-bile, then you're wind win-bile until you're a Buddha. And then you're, when you've achieved Buddhahood, then you are a win by all Buddha. You know That's the constitution you brought there. Just like if you're tall. If you're tall, then you're a tall Buddha. If you're short, you're a short Buddha. Chubby Buddha, thin Buddha. But that's what you bring with you, right? So I thought I was on safe ground. <laughs> Famous last words. And then I saw him No, no, not like that. Not like that. That was a pretty good invitation, eh? <laughs> no, no. It's a pretty close, direct quote. And he said, No, no. Stage of, comple- stage of completion practice. Classic highest Yoga Tantra. Stage of completion practice. This means you've nailed shamatha Vipassana, Bodhicitta, Stage of regeneration. You're a completely authentic, accomplished stage of completion practitioner. In other words, you're pretty close to enlightenment. He so said, such a person, you can actually change the, the constitution of your body right down to the molecular level. You can change it. It's malleable. I learned something. I love that. Because here, that was years and years ago, and I remember it. Because I made a mistake, and then, oh, I'm so glad I, made, I said that. Because otherwise, you know, you should carry on in ignorance. So, that's in the classic developmental mode. Developmental mode of, you know, of stage of generation, completion. And it's very demanding. You really would re- really it would be preferable to be to, be, to following th- these practices, stage of generation, especially stage of completion better to be younger than older and better to be in good health if you want to see the evidence for that look at the movies Yo- the movie yogis of tibet yogis of tibet and look at this yogi gymnast who's doing the exercises relating to t- t- tumo the tsalung practice the tumo you want to be really buff for that you don't want to start when you're 50 you like to start when you're about 16 and you could have gone out for, the, uh, for the, uh, you know, the Summer Olympics, but you decided to be a Tumor practitioner instead. Because this guy's buff. He looks like Daniel. you know. Strong. You know, good good body. Boom, boom, boom. Like that. Like that. He could be a good Tumor practitioner if he wanted to be. But you don't want to start out my age. You're not going to go very far. Body's a bit too old. You know, frankly. I knew one yogi, Losan Tenzin. He started when he was 48. Amazing story. I won't give it right now. But he was, he, I've told the story many times, but he was the one that was the farmer, then joined the Indian, Indian army, and, and then finally developed authentic 100% renunciation. And then just devoted the rest of his life to practice, living up at 15,000 feet in a cave, coming down once a year for lentils and rites, and would head back up again. One austere, austere monk. I translated for him. It's a tremendous privilege. And he commented when I was translating for him. This is about 20, no, 30 years ago. He said, Bob Thurman, you might re- remember the story, very short. Bob Thurman, because it was at Bob Thurman's home, he asked him, what's it like to be you now? After he'd spent about 12 years in like Milarepa style. Bam. Really austere, Really intense. And what's, it, what's your mind like now? And I'm translating for this, this monk, yogi. And, I'll try to imitate a little bit, just because it was so choice. He just turned his head down as if he was really embarrassed. And uh, he said, well, now I'm uh, in a constant state of inexpressible bliss, both while I'm meditating and when I'm not meditating, because <laughs> that's the kind of thing you just don't say. you know. Tibetans just don't talk about. But Bob Thurman, though, he's a rascal. He's a lovely, brilliant rascal. But Bob Thurman knew that this monk had been told by his holiness that when he comes to America, and he's being studied by Herbert Benson at Harvard Medical School for his Dumo ability, that when these Western scientists ask him about his experience, he must not say, Oh, shucks, I don't have any experience. I don't have any realization. Because they will believe you. And then they'll wonder, they'll wonder why the heck are you here? You know, so just tell them the truth. And that runs totally against the grain of general Buddhist practice, tradition. You saw it in It Lingba. Don't talk about your experience. It just creates more obstacles. Well, Bob Thurman knew. And so he, he knew he had him, like, checkmate in one move. You know, what's your experiences? Okay. So, but he started when he was 48 and became very accomplished in Dumont. But he had a good, strong, wiry body. He wasn't in ill health and he living up there. So in any case, that stage of completion in which, if you're really accomplished like that, then you, so whatever ails you, you may be able to transcend it by very, very deep practice. Okay? Um, my primary health care provider is a wonderful Tibet, traditional Tibetan doctor named Dr. Dekit Nyaronsha, happy to say her name. She's also uh, a, a uh, she may be, well, she certainly is a doctor for Yaturimachi, my Lama Yaturimachi. And she commented, Yaturimachi is about 90 years old now and doing well. And she, she made the comment that, because uh, she, she takes it, you know, he, she knows his body, the pulse, that pulse diagnosis and so forth. And she said, he's lived beyond his karmically given lifespan. He should have run out by now. But there was so much merit, such depth of dharma in this lifetime, that he simply extended his lifespan beyond what was karmically given. So we see that the meditation then can have a direct impact on the body, transforming the body, but also extending lifespan. Okay? But I thought, even though it's going to take a little bit of time, but I think this is juicy. Well, there are two ways. I mentioned there are two ways. One is, okay, through therapy, through meditation, whatever, actually restore your health. That would be great. But there are cases where you just can't. You know, you can't. There's a deformity, for example, or what have you. Or there's just some chronic problem that you just have not been able to solve, and it's there, and it's dukkha. It's physical dukkha. Your other way, how can, we, how can sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? Well, what's appearing to you hedonically, what the messages your body is sending you, may be unpleasant messages. right? But is there, and even if that's going to be the case for the rest of your life, like my friend, the doctor friend who injured his spine in a biking accident, so he has chronic pain for the rest of his life, and even heavy-duty drugs don't help it's some very special thing with the spine. But he's just got chronic pain all the time, right? And there's nothing to be done. He's a medical doctor himself and a wonderful man. I know him rather well. Very, very sincere practitioner. Uh, but what then? So now do we have to say, well, I, can't, I guess you know, there's no hope for you. And the answer is no, there's another route. And the other route is completely release all grasping. Release all grasping on two levels. One is all grasping onto this pain belongs to me. That it's just orphaned pain. Just like Deva said, suffering has no owner. Remember? When he's contemplating, do I need to take upon myself the responsibility of all sentient beings suffering? And the answer is yes, you do. He says to himself in his soliloquy, and why? Because suffering has no owner, right? Yeah. Well then let your own suffering have no owner. It's not intrinsically yours. It doesn't have tentacles from its own side that can cling to you and say, you belong to me, I belong to you, we're wedded for life, it doesn't have that power. Suffering has power only because we identify with it. And otherwise it just floats like a cloud in the sky with no owner. And eventually, of course, it will dissipate. And so that's one level. Just release all grasping onto it. This is, this is within the four applications of mindfulness. Release all grasping to it. So it's just there, rising in the space of your awareness, but no owner. And therefore, it doesn't get you in its grip. So, there's one possibility. And then going deeper, now we're going to Mahayana Vipassana, Majyamaka Vipassana, realize the emptiness of inherent nature. Not only that it doesn't belong to you, but even as it is, even there, it's not an inherently existent suffering existing in the space of your awareness. It has no inherent existence at all. It arises independent upon conceptual designation, which means if that's the case, you can simply withdraw the conceptual designation. In which case, for you, being in the center of your mandala, that pain doesn't exist anymore. Because it wasn't just a given. It arises relationally and arises in relationship to and in independence upon conceptual designation. Now, no one, is, no one is suggesting that's easy. But I am suggesting it's been done. It's been done many, many times. It's a fact. don't have to believe me, but it's still a fact, whether you believe me or not. But now I just thought, let's have some fun here, in case you're not having fun yet. <laughs> When's the fun time going to begin? And we're in the context of Dzogchen, right? In the, in the culmination of Dzogchen meditation. Oh, now is it going to show up here? I sent myself an email, really nice email. Right now, I'm getting, oh, there it is, got it. So I thought, well, What's the culmination of the Dzogchen path? It's rainbow body. Rainbow body would suggest a very deep, very, very deep transmutation of your body. So we're really back to body. So I'm just going to read, I think, without. I don't think it needs much of any commentary. This is uh, from a text that I've cited before. It's Dujun Lingma's Commentary to the Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra. And a very succinct, spot-on description of rainbow body, of multiple Mm -hmm. levels. And among his disciples, there were those who achieved all of them. So it was not hypothetical. This is not mystical theology. This is empirical evidence. And he's simply accounting what's behind it. What's the story? Like, what's the story when Geshe Zuppa, when when he passed into clear light of death? What's the story? All you see outside is, well, that's weird. His body's not decomposing. What's the story? Because that's not the point of meditation is to show off for a week, oh, look, my body doesn't decompose for a week. I mean, who, after you've seen it once or twice, who cares? It decomposes later. So by itself, if that's all there is to it, well, that's, well, that's interesting. That's kind of odd. But then it decomposes after a while. But then that miss, entirely misses the whole point. The point was not how long I can keep my body from decomposing. That's a mere peripheral side effect. Frankly, not that dissimilar to the heat generated by Dumo meditation. Of course. I hope nobody misunderstood me when I said there are cheaper ways of drying your laundry than, you know, wrapping yourself in wet, wet, wet sheets. I mean, that's just the outer effect. What's, what's that practice for? To realize emptiness by directing your energies right up through the central channel and realizing emptiness by way of this energetic approach. And that's the real reason, and the side effect, the outward effect that you can actually see well, a lot of heat is generated. So now we just go right to this commentary. Dijum Lingpa, commenting on the revelation that he himself transmitted, and that is the sharp vajra of conscious awareness tantra. So when it comes to Rainbow Body, here's what he writes. Or This was actually oral teaching. So he spoke it, and one of his disciples, Pema Dashi, wrote it down, edited it, and then it comes out. And I've translated This is in the three-volume set that will come out next year. By actualizing the original pure, dharma, the original pure dharmakaya in this way, The signs of truly perfect Buddhahood are that, like water dissolving into water or like space dissolving into space, your quintessential body has no limits with regards to its lifespan, duration, and dimensions. Your quintessential body. Without such limitations, you awaken as the great transference, youthful Vās body, or Kāya, in the absolute space of phenomena free of conceptual elaboration. So this is a direct reference to the highest level of rainbow body. And I mentioned before, Padmasambhava manifested that, Vimalamitra manifested that, uh, Chichen, Chichen Singh Wonshut manifested that, what, 13th century, I think. It's rare, though. It's really quite rare over the whole history of Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. It's just not that common. And so I do find it interesting that it keeps on coming up, and especially here in these very future-oriented uh, revealed teachings, pure vision teachings of Jujum Lingpa. But he keeps on referring to it, like, you know, that's not just for three people for the last thousand years. This actually could happen again. You know? I'm taking that seriously. They've earned my trust. Do Lingba, but earn my trust. I've never been good at blind faith. Never could do it. But they've earned my trust, so I have trust in this. But there it is with this great transference rainbow body. Calling, he call, refers to this as the quintessential body that has no limits with, respect, with regard to its lifespan, duration, and dimensions. Which is to say that when you achieve this great transference rainbow body, or also called the youthful vas body, great transference youthful vas body, I won't give the etymology of that, that uh, you achieve that at any age. You could be 45, 50, 60, anything, and you're not dying. You may, your, your natural death might have been 20 or 30 years in the future. But you finished and you're a gifted individual. And so while they're in possibly very good health, or maybe not very good health, either way, if you achieve this great transference rainbow body, then while you're alive, then your body, your meditation, and your body simply dissolves all the materiality of your body dissolves, dissolves away and it leaves no remainder of any materiality at all. It dissolves into the yeshigilung, into the energy of primordial consciousness, which is coextensive with primordial consciousness, coextensive with dharmadhatu. So it is that from which, if we consider that all appearances are these effulgences of primordial consciousness, or rikpa, and that means all materiality, and there's a detailed analysis of this, of how the five elements are all emerging from the five facets of primordial consciousness, you know, these outer crust, outer crust. But what if you tap them into their source? Just like following the five poisons, tap them into the source, trace them back to the source, it always goes back to ripa, primordial consciousness, the five facets of primordial consciousness. So that is the evolution out into samsara, is the encrusting, the crystallization of these, this outer radiance of primordial consciousness. And then in the practice of Dzogchen, you're just reversing that. And you decrystallize, you melt your physical body made of atoms that physicists, chemists know a whole lot about. You're just melting that right back from which they came. Right back into the energy of primordial consciousness. Which means there's no materiality left. You disappear, you do a disappearance act. Right then when you're in perfectly good health, you've achieved enlightenment. But then, in a finger snap, if somebody blinked, you might not even see it. You can just reform like that. You can reform. And then you'll look like, if you can have any form you like, but you could reform in the same form that you were before. And nobody would know the difference except that there's no materiality to your body at all. Which means you will not die. That's the one way to cheat death. Arhats die, the Buddha died, Buddha Shakyamuni died. But if you do this, you pull the rug out from beneath the Lord of Death. He goes, pooh, falls on his back. Because, speaking a little bit poetically, the Lord of death is looking for you, and he can't even find your body. Because there's no body to die. You just withdrew it. Before it could die, you just, right back. And what's manifesting here is just like a reflection of the moon and water, but it's it's like a holodeck. You can touch it. You can hug it. You can say, but it's here, like in a dream. But as in a dream, there is simply no physicality there at all. So whatever ailed you, well, that's history. Because you don't have a body that can be a host for any ailment ever again. And you will simply withdraw any emanation. It's, in, it's said in Tibetan, gompa dzokpa that your intention has been fulfilled. So you manifest in the world to serve in a certain way. And when the job's done, you go, That's what Patna Sambhava did. By general account, when Padmasambhava had finished what he needed to do in Tibet, he didn't die. He didn't head off to India. He didn't hop on his donkey and go someplace. He just went, <sharp inhale> just re- withdrew, withdrew the appearance. So, great transference, Rainbow Body. My own predilection is don't count that out. I don't think it's just ancient history. And it's, again, I don't, I don't, I'm not forced to believe it's only ancient history. I'm not forced to believe this is superstition or fabrication or just myth. I'm not, not forced to. These are extremely responsible people, and they know one heck of a lot more about dying than anybody in the modern world of science and so forth. I don't know how to even abide in the clear light of death, let alone these others. So that's clear, That's great transference rainbow body. And now, the bodies of some people become enveloped in light and disappear into the nature of light. This is called the mass of light. The bodies. So that's another way to check out. Uh, the bodies of others are encu- encompassed by a shroud of light that covers the sky with rainbows and clouds, and they disappear into rainbow colors. This is called the great rainbow body. In these two cases, when you come to the end of your life, you awaken. You awaken without any separation of your body and mind. You just you're gone. So in other words, no body is left behind. That would be the separation. Well, there's just no bodies, no remnant. Other people after their bodies and mind have separated, dissolve into the nature of rainbows and light without leaving behind any trace of their aggregates. This is called the little rainbow body. For some people, when the ground-clear light arises, within seven days, the material elements of the body become smaller and smaller, until and so finally, only the residues of their hair and nails remain. So that's the small rainbow body. And that, according to the late Kepjé Benodermache, the late head of the Nima order, and I translated for him only once in Los Angeles, and at that time he said, and I heard and I translated, he said, I know with certain knowledge that in the course of my life there are at least six cases of people achieving that. I know that to be the case. So the dissolution of the body into elementary particles is called the little transference. It also occurs in cutting through for those of exceptionally superior faculties. So most of these modes of the achieving rainbow body occur directly as a result of the practice of tutgel, the direct crossing over. But for those of exceptionally superior faculties, you may achieve the rainbow body just by texture, just by the cutting through. It could be enough. In other words, when I'm giving you here in eight weeks, if you don't achieve rainbow body, then it's not my fault. Because <laughs> you actually have enough teaching here. And if you do, then I'll congratulate you, if I can find you. (laughs) So thus, there is first the mass of light, second the great rainbow body, and third the little rainbow body and little transference, or the dissolution into elementary particles, which are accounted as one, making three. I'm not going to unpack that, but it's just kind of the categorization of different levels of rainbow body. So these three kinds of liberation occur as the quintessence of the rainbow body. The former two, that's the um, mass of light and, and the great rainbow body. The former two are the ways of those of middling faculties are liberated, and the latter two are the ways of those of inferior faculties how they are liberated. Okay, so little, the uh, little rainbow body and little transference. If you're kind of really kind of, you know, schmucky. Inferior faculty. Well, that's how you do it. Okay, I'd be content if you did that. You know you'd only get a C for the class, but still, you'd pass. <laughs> and the first, great transference, the first great transference is the way those of superior faculties are liberated. So that's always heralded as the, the optimal one. Although some people wish for the rainbow body with no final testament, they are liberated in the great transference as described previously. Others who aspire for the rainbow body with no physical pain achieve it as a mass of light and a great rainbow body. Yet others who wish to transfer to the rainbow body achieve the little rainbow body and disappear into minute particles. So the first is the dharmakaya of entering the womb of natural liberation, the second two are the dharmakaya of non-dual union, and the final two are the dharmakaya of transference to primordial consciousness. However you are liberated among these three ways, the unwavering dharmakaya manifests limitlessly as displays of the kayas and facets of primordial consciousness. So the final point is a simple one, but rather important. And that is, these, there's this you know, higher, medium, and low, lower levels of um, rainbow body. But, and Ramachi made this very clear when he was teaching this, this is your outer manifestation. Outer manifestation. Um, but, but, and that, that depends on your giftedness and so forth and so on. But once you've achieved rainbow, rainbow body, then the quality of awakening that you experience is the same. Where you arrive is the same, whether it's small, medium, or great. Enlightenment is enlightenment, which means then from that point on, you just manifest as effortlessly as the moon casting its reflection on countless, in countless pools of water. Effortlessly, and in any way needed, manifesting the kāyas, sambhogakāya, namanakāya, and so forth, manifesting facets of primordial consciousness. So in other words, the, um, how do you say, the compassion element really has no limit except for that which we impose upon ourselves. Okay? That was a little introduction to Rainbow Body. Now let's go for it.
1: Yuki Nukcham Yamse Guru Pema Siti Hong Hong Wagin Yuki Nukjam Zam Pema Gesa Dombolah Yam Zen Choki Pema Juni Jesu Ta Kando Mambu Ka Keki Jesu Tatu JINGILAPCHI SHEKSUSU GURU PEMA SIDI HUNG HUNG VUGIN YUKI NUKJAMSAM BEMA GESA DOMBOLA YAMZEN CHOKIM UDUNYE BEMA JUNE SHESU DA KODU KANDO MAMBUKO kye ki jesu natup ki jingil apchi shek su su guru pehma siddhi hum
0: On my home, that's a good opportunity home. If you would like to change your posture, please do so now. Study your body in their in their natural states: body, speech, and mind. Let your awareness rest in its own still, natural purity, indivisible from the mind of Guru, of Guru Rinpoche, indivisible from the mind of Samadha Now we move further in this progression, this sequence of meditations, beginning with immeasurable loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity, where that is the foundation, the richly cultivated soil. Then we move on to great compassion, in which we are arouse the aspiration and the intention that all sentient beings may be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And we imagine that to have taken place. Imagine this enormous relief that comes with the freedom from suffering and its underlying causes. But Now we move further. Beyond mere relief, beyond mere freedom, we move to Mahamaitri, great loving-kindness. And you'll see that the pattern of the meditation, the sequence, is, is as this, the same as before in the cultivation of great compassion, which is to say we begin with a question, and it is not rhetorical. In Tibetan, Samshan Tamjit Devadandevi Gyudandena gyudan Why couldn't all sentient beings be endowed with happiness and the causes of happiness? So now is the time for deep contemplation. And consider the whole spectrum of happiness from hedonic well-being, which is so enormously important to us all, but reaching up and encompassing eudaimonic well-being. the immutable bliss of the realization of Nirvana, the realization of Dhammadhatu, the realization of primordial consciousness. Why couldn't all sentient beings find such happiness in its causes? Another way of phrasing the question, what would be needed? What are the cooperative conditions necessary? Since the primary cause is already there, each one is imbued with the Buddha nature, but it's not manifesting. What cooperative conditions, what circumstances need to be brought together so that all beings may find genuine happiness and its causes? Brainstorm, heartstorm, imagine. To the second phase of the meditation. Dembar gyuchik. May we all be so endowed, may we all indeed find happiness in the causes of happiness, arouse this aspiration that all beings may find hedonic and eudaimonic well being to the highest level and find and cultivate its causes. You may, if you wish, can join this aspiration now with the breath as we've done before with every out-breath, sending out in all directions this aspiration for all beings, sending out rays of light, of loving kindness, of joy, with every out-breath, sending out this light of loving kindness to all directions, touching, embracing, suffusing every sentient being. You've cultivated pure vision in the past, in your state regeneration practice, or as we saw in the pure, illusory body teachings, in the dream yoga teachings. Now is the time to manifest that. In this practice, we begin with a question. The question leads, leads to an aspiration. and Then in the third phase of the meditation, the aspiration leads to intention, resolve, a pledge or a promise. In Tibetan, very simply, I shall do so. I shall bring all sentient beings to happiness and the causes of happiness. If you continue with the visualization then imagine now as rays of light emanate in all directions, imagine them effectively bringing each sentient being along the path of well-being, cultivating the causes of well-being, right to its very culmination, to perfect awakening. Imagine this occurring in this realm of possibility. Imagine this occurring here and now. The last phase of the practice is the same for all of the four greats, great compassion, loving kindness and so on. May the Guru and the Deity bless me to enable me to do so. May it be actualized. In this phase, you may, if you wish, imagine with each in-breath the light of blessings of the Buddhas of the three times, all the yidams, all the great bodhisattvas, the Dharma protectors, the dakinis, the whole array of enlightened beings, their blessings converging in upon you from every side, converging in upon your body, in upon the nucleus at your heart, with every in-breath. With every out-breath, breathing out this light, as if sands moving through an hourglass, moving through the fulcrum, moving out the other side, drawing in all the blessings, emanating all the blessings in all directions. With the aspiration and the resolve, All beings find happiness and the causes of happiness. This I shall do. Release all visualization, aspirations, and resolve. And let your awareness rest in its own nature. (laughs) Oh <laughs> no. Enjoy your practice today.